Next week, the Lord willing, we hope to go back to our series in Galatians, but it's good from time to time to also spend time in the Psalms. The Psalms are the prayer book of God's people, and we last week found the gospel in Psalm 3. This morning, we hope to read Psalm 4 together as well. We're going to read Psalm 3 and 4 together because these two are quite similar in some ways. They belong together. So the text this morning will be Psalm 4, verse 8, the last verse, but we'll read Psalm 3 and 4 together first. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm 4, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, surely one of the most difficult aspects of Christian living is to stay consistent in your faith. Last week we studied Psalm 3 together. We saw David, King David, responding to a crisis situation. Near the middle of the psalm he makes this incredible profession. Psalm 3 verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And we saw last week that because Christ is our King, we are sustained as David was. 
But the question is, how does that play out in the long term? After all, a crisis situation often comes with long-term consequences, doesn't it? You get a bad medical diagnosis. Maybe a family member gets involved in a car accident. Your whole life gets turned upside down. That's crisis. That's a crisis situation. But then once that crisis situation is over, it does not mean necessarily that life goes back to normal. You're still stuck with the consequences. And often when you're in the middle of this crisis situation, you're running on adrenaline. Isn't that true? You're relying heavily on the Lord. You get a lot of support. But, but what about the long slog afterwards? That's what Psalm 4 is about. If Psalm 3 is about faith in a crisis situation, Psalm 4 is about faith in the face of long-term discouragement. There are, in fact, many parallels between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. In Psalm 3, verse 2, for instance, David has doubters who are questioning his faith. In Psalm 4, verse 2, he's responding to doubters. In Psalm 3, verse 4, David is answered by the Lord. In Psalm 4, verse 1, he has to ask God again to answer him. And in verse, Psalm 4, verse 3, he has to remind himself that God does actually hear. And in Psalm 3, verse 8, he says, your, your blessing be on your people. But in Psalm 4, verse 6, he asks God for his blessing. So, so there are many parallels between these two psalms. But one place where they're different is in this aspect of crisis. Psalm 3 is about the immediate problem, and Psalm 4 is about the long term. But in the end, both psalms preach the same gospel to us. You can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And when we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, we can lie down and sleep in the midst of turmoil. That's also how we will approach our text this morning. When, when we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, we can lie down and sleep in the midst of turmoil And we'll see that we can lie down and sleep despite turmoil around us. And we can lie down and sleep despite turmoil within us. So one thing that's that's interesting about this psalm, Psalm 4, when when you look at it, is that the type of turmoil that David is experiencing is not specified. That was different in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 very clearly said a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. That was the superscription. So that psalm was associated with that time. And it begins with, with, also with these words, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. So he feels overwhelmed. He's in the middle of this situation where he, everybody has it in for him. He's, he's concerned about his physical well-being, but you don't get that same sense of urgency from Psalm 4. All he says in, in verse 1 is that God has given him relief before And so, because God has given him relief before, he feels free to call on God again. And and so we don't know what the issue is. All we know is that there is turmoil, but the kind of turmoil is not specified. Now, if you look at this Psalm 4, after he has addressed God in verse 1, he interrupts his own prayer to talk to the people who presumably are part of the problem. 
And if you, if you break this psalm down into its parts, you see that he's actually addressing different groups of people. He's addressing God in verse 1, then enemies in verses 2 and 3. And in verse 4 and 5, he addresses other people who are suffering. And then again in, in verse 6, 6b onwards, he addresses God. But these are not even complete conversations that he's um, having here. This is almost like fragments of conversations, little bits and pieces. There's a sense of restlessness in this psalm. It's almost as if he, he starts to pray, then he gets distracted by his own thoughts, and then he comes back to finish his prayer later on. Maybe you can relate to that. Surely this has happened to many of us before. You start to pray, then you start to think about the things that you're praying about. And pretty soon your mind is, is off. You start replaying conversations. You start replaying what was said, what you should have said, and so on. Maybe there's even a to-do list thrown in there somewhere. And this, this idea of, of replaying bits and pieces of conversations in your mind is what's happening here as well. It seems to be happening anyway in Psalm 4. It's, not, it's, it's hard, isn't it, to cut through all the mental chatter that happens in your own mind sometimes. And you're somewhat, it's not like it's, it's happening and you're separate from it, but this, this stuff is going on and you start to engage with it yourself and you're trying to get back to prayer and it's, it's almost like pushing uphill. So, so these are real people that David is encountering, real problems, real situations, but at the same time, Obviously, if you read the psalm, also, also fragments running through his mind. He's mentally addressing these people in his mind, and then at some point wrote down this psalm so that others, maybe even these very people, could experience the assurance of faith that he had experienced. But he needs to get to that point, and that means working through the difficulties presented by these people. And his foremost concern with that is, how much longer is this going to go on? That's what he's asking in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Or, uh, sorry, that's Psalm 3, Psalm 4, verse 2. O men, how, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So there's this repetition of how long, how long in here. How long is this going to still go on? And it's not clear what he's referring to, but we can pick up a few clues from the words being used. The word honor refers to his dignity as king, but that, that role is entirely wrapped up in his relationship with God. So when these people um, call, um, when they turn his honor into shame, um, by their words and actions, they're calling his relationship with the one true God into question. And you can see that because in verse 3, he, he says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. He, he, he wouldn't feel the need to say that if his relationship with God had not been called into question in the first place. So it's like he has to remind these people. He even has to remind himself that God does hear when you call to him. But these people are saying to him that his prayers are a waste of time. And they seek after lies that's uh, the other thing that it says. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? What does that mean? Well, um, 
This phrase, seek after lies, is often in the Bible a reference to idolatry. Idols are, are an embodied lie, and this is a reference to, to idolatry. So a big part of, of David's problem is that the people in his life that are giving him grief know that God is not answering his prayers at the time, and they themselves are turning to idols instead. They're worshiping other gods. They, they are looking elsewhere for relief. And they're confronting him with that, and that is part of the turmoil in his life. So how does David deal with that? How does he deal with this turmoil? Well, he warns them, and he comforts himself with this one statement that he makes in verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. In other words, he professes that he belongs to God. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. But if you start to think about that, how is that even possible? Because these, um, why are these people set apart? It's not because of their own godliness. I read in the opening verse, he refers to God as the God of my righteousness. So that shows that his righteousness comes from God. And, and the focus then here is not on his own personal godliness. He's not saying that the Lord, I belong to the Lord because I'm such a godly person. That's not the focus here. The focus is on the righteousness of God. And when you take that idea and start to break it down and think about it, then it becomes quite remarkable. Because David is a sinner. Apart from God's grace, the only thing that he can expect when he appeals to God's righteousness is instant death. Sin deserves death. Sin deserves judgment and death. And God is righteous. God punishes sin. But the thing is that David also has forgiveness. David has forgiveness through the means that, that, that God has set up for that. God has called David into a relationship with himself. David belongs to God. God has made promises to him, and God never breaks those promises. And so that's part of God's righteousness as well, that he never breaks his promises. Righteousness means to live in agreement with the law of God. God's law is an expression of his character. When the Bible says that God is righteous, one of the things that it means is that he's consistent, absolutely consistent with himself, with his word, with his promises. And that's what David depends on. He can expect God to hear him because of God's righteousness, because of God's commitment to him. But that doesn't mean that he can take it for granted. And he is well aware of that, which is why he asks for God's grace in verse 1. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It's a very finely tuned balance between all of these, these different aspects. God's righteousness and grace and David's corresponding godliness, a way of life that, that, that is in accordance with the sort of uh, person, that, that, the sort of relationship that God calls him into. So he asks God to be gracious. Grace is God's undeserved favor. So what he's saying is that he, he wants God to listen to him because of God's righteousness, but he also acknowledges that he does not deserve that. That's, that's what he means. And so... If you read through this psalm, you start to notice a subtle shift taking place. 
He's moving away from the circumstances to the reality of faith. And we've seen this before. We've seen this in Psalm 3. So in, in Psalm 4, verse 3, he, he says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And that reassurance is not based on his circumstances. It's not based on the stuff that other people are saying to him, which is still stuck in his mind. It's simply based on faith. Faith shapes his response to the people around him. Look at verse 4. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts. There's actually four things. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. Be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord are the four things that he encourages people to do instead of being angry. Now, you might wonder, who, who is he saying this to? It's not the same people necessarily as in verse 2. And, and the reason for that is because it doesn't actually make sense. Think about that. If, if these people in verse 2 that apparently are, are worshiping idols and that are mocking David, um, why, why would they be angry? If they're mocking him, if they feel that they have the upper hand against him, why would they be angry? If anything, they might be determined, they might be amused by his suffering the way people often are when they have a mean streak in them, but they wouldn't be angry. And, and then if they were angry, why would David encourage them, in a sense, in that? He would say, be angry, but, you know, and do not sin. So, it makes more sense to understand these people in verse 4 to be his fellow believers who themselves are struggling with what is happening. In other words, people like himself that are, that are stuck in the same turmoil, and he's saying to them, don't be so angry that you sin. Instead, reflect for a moment on your relationship with God. Offer right sacrifices means offer them with the right attitude, with true repentance. So apparently they're not doing so right now. They're not spiritually healthy right now, these people. And so the way that they're dealing or not dealing with their own turmoil is not right. And so David is encouraging them to repent. This goes to show, by the way, that emotions themselves are not wrong. Scripture often reminds us not to be led by our emotions. But the correct response to that is not to ignore our emotions altogether. You notice here, he's not saying don't be angry at all. There is such a thing as, as righteous indignation. But that's a pretty rare thing. We should not be led by strong emotions because strong emotions can often lead us into sin. Instead, we need to deal with strong emotions appropriately. When we encounter a strong emotion such as anger, we need to stop. We need to examine ourselves, ask ourselves, where is this coming from? We should not be led by our emotions, to be sure. But Psalm 4 does also not tell us to ignore our emotions altogether. It says instead, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In other words, examine this situation, examine your reaction to it, and then offer right sacrifices. That is to say, sacrifices that go with repentance. In other words, don't just worship out of ritual 
Don't go through the motions while your mind is elsewhere, maybe in an angry place, but, but your worship should be a well-thought-out response to the situation that you're in. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord, he says. But here's the really fascinating part, verses 4 and 5. What makes this so fascinating is that he is telling others to trust in God even though that trust does not seem to have paid off for him in his current situation. Did you notice that? Would you not agree that this is really interesting? You think about it. He's under terrible pressure. He's dealing with all this turmoil around him. He's got people saying stuff to him that hurts because otherwise it wouldn't be stuck in his mind. His fellow believers are struggling around him. So the community of faith is not really supporting him the way they should, and his prayers are not being answered in the moment, he thinks. And yet he says to all of these people around him who are also not getting an answer to their prayers that they need to trust in God anyway. Not interesting. Now, how, how can he do that? Why is he so sure? Well, because of what we already discussed in verse 3. He knows that he belongs to the Lord. He's been set apart by him. He's got God's word for that. And so when he prays to a God who doesn't seem to answer, he reminds himself of this reality. When the accusing voices of the godless and the doubters arise in his mind and interrupt his prayers, he, he goes back to God's promises. He reminds himself he belongs to God. But it takes all of these forces of turmoil to, to remind him of that again. It's only in the interaction with these external forces of turmoil that he works out the, the right attitude to have. And that's the work of God too, you know? You could say, in this psalm, God is working through the oppression by others to remind David of his promises. So these others, in, uh, in verse, um, verse 1 and 2, these others can be wicked, they can be punished for their evil, and at the same time, God can still work that evil to David's good, just like he can work it to your good. It's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul wrote about in, in Romans 8.28 when he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that should not be understood to say that the circumstances are good. David's circumstances here are not good, but God is working through these circumstances to, um, he's working through these circumstances for David's good, and he's drawing David closer to his promises. You know, in our Reformed tradition, we have a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God, and that's good, that's biblical. That's the way it should be. But it's one thing to theologically profess that. It's quite different to be in a situation where you encounter genuine evil or hardship and then have to hold on to that. Oppression is real. Some of you are suffering right now. Many believers all over the world are suffering for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes reasons of health, sometimes circumstance, sometimes poverty, sometimes persecution. It's quite a bit of that. The psalm does not promise relief right away in the moment from, from all these different forms of oppression. But what it does promise is that God is with us. 
And is that not the very essence of the gospel? You can find it on every page, that God is with us. Is that not the very name of Jesus himself? Emmanuel, God with us. Is it not the the reality of the gospel that, that Christ entered the suffering, that he shared it with us, that he took its cause upon himself and he atoned for it? David experienced all of this in faith, but we can be even more sure of this because we live after the coming of Christ. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Our faith is built on him. It's built on the things that he said. It is built on the reality of his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his promised return. And you might not see that in the moment, but you can still know that it is true. And that's the essence of faith. That is, as it says in Hebrews 11, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. That's the same faith that David had. Faith in Christ the ultimate king. Through faith in him, we can be sure that we belong to God as well. We have his word for it. If you belong to Christ through faith, you are a royal child, and that is your identity that supersedes all other identities that you might have for yourself, all other identities that people might label you with, all other identities that society might categorize you with. You are a royal child, is the one reality, a child of God that, that supersedes all of these other ones. That's your identity. Do you remind yourself of that regularly? Because that's the key to praying with confidence. When we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, we can lie down and pray and sleep in the midst of turmoil. We can lie down and sleep despite turmoil around us, and we can lie down and sleep despite turmoil within us. That's the other point we are going to consider. Because you see, sometimes outer turmoil is not the biggest problem. Sometimes inner turmoil is even worse. And it's not even always tied to your circumstances. You can have people that have a pretty good life on the outside, and on the inside they are a mess. They're falling apart. David is experiencing some turmoil. He says in verse 1, He says, he's in distress. You've given me relief when I was in distress. And I was in distress again. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. And he recalls the words of many in verse 6. Who will show us some good? There are people who are ready to give up. They question God. And the questioning of others, the doubts of others can be painful to hear when you're feeling a little bit shaky yourself, when your own prayers are not being answered. When they raise the question, prayer is not working, will we ever see any good again? It's an intimidating thought. This might be it. We might never see any good again. It can make you doubt. And David's response is beautiful. David's response to this, he, he doesn't want to give up with them even when he still has the voices echoing in his mind. He understands he cannot and should not lose faith because then how will he be different, any different from those people that are questioning him in verse 2? 
David understands together with the writer of the letter to the Hebrews that he cannot throw away his confidence. He needs to persevere. But he does not rebuke these doubting voices either. He does not tell them also, he does not tell them that God has a purpose in their suffering. Sure, it's true, God does. But, but it's not always helpful to um, let that be the only focus when you speak to people. And these people are suffering. He doesn't rebuke them. Instead, he prays for them that they might experience God's blessing. Now, the ESV translation doesn't show that very clearly. If you look at verse 6, it begins with the words of the doubters, who will show us any good? There are many who say, who will show us some good? And then it says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now, the ESV makes it sound like that last half, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, belongs with this question, who will show us some good? Now, you can read it that way, and it's not necessarily wrong to do so. This, you can actually read it both ways. But you have to remember the original language does not have quotation marks. There's no quotation marks in Hebrew. So you could also follow many other Bible translations that separate this verse into two statements. So the first half then becomes a complaint by the doubters who will show us some good. The second half then could be David's prayer for them. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. It probably makes more sense to read it that way. It's also smoother when you, when you um, then from that follow through to verse 7. Then the transition is not so abrupt. So again, it's not wrong to, to have verse 6 as, as one unit. I mean, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. It might also be something that, that these people, you know, they're praying, they're calling out to God for his blessing. But um, all things considered, it's probably more accurate to say that lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, is David's prayer for these people. And David then is praying that God would lift up the light of his face on us. He's not praying just for himself. He sees himself as part of a community of faith. The thing about grief is that it tends to isolate you. It becomes about you and your relationship with God. But he says, look, I'm part of a church community. Let the light of your face shine upon us, on me and on these doubters. He's praying for the favor of God in his life and the lives of those around him. And he's able to pray for that and expect to receive it because he knows that he belongs to God. So, so even though his life is in turmoil, even though his feelings are in turmoil, he can confidently pray for this blessing because he knows that he belongs to God. We can do the same thing. Is it not a wonderful reality that as believers we can pray to God and know that he hears us? Think about that. We are sinners by nature. By nature, we do not deserve to have God hear us at all. Yet God does hear us. How can we be sure? Because of that other king and his work and his prayers, Jesus Christ. God promised David that he would bring Christ into the world. 
Because of Christ, we can confidently pray to God and know that he hears us even if our prayers in the moment sometimes sound like a monologue. We feel like it's a monologue instead of a dialogue. We might not always feel like God is answering our prayers, but we can be absolutely sure that he listens. Why? Because Christ underwent turmoil for us. He underwent turmoil in the worst possible way. He underwent the ultimate turmoil. Inside and out, hellish suffering, suffering for our sins. And he never stopped praying. He spent nights in prayer with his father until the day that he was crucified. And God withdrew his favor from him for a time. And even then, even on the cross, one of his last words, one of the last things he said was still a prayer to God. It is because of his faithfulness that we are able to pray this psalm. Because Christ underwent turmoil for us, we can confidently pray for the presence of God in our own turmoil, even if we don't sense it right away. Now, of course, there's always cynical, you will, cynical people. You will always find doubters. You will always find people just like David had in his life whether in the church or outside of it, who might say, well, you're just trying to convince yourself that this is all true. They might say faith is trying to believe until you're convinced something is true. But that's not what faith is about at all. Again, Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is becoming assured in yourself of something that is already true and coming to accept it. And that takes place on the level of the heart, not the imagination. And once it penetrates the heart, then there is true joy. Until there is true joy, it has not penetrated the heart yet. And that joy comes by understanding these things in prayer. See, David is prayerfully working his way through his spiritual and physical insomnia. And in the end, what he wants more than anything else is is, is the same thing as Job wanted. His primary concern is not just relief from distress, but from knowing God in his distress. And that's hard to do. You cannot just think your way to a stronger faith. You cannot reason your way to a stronger faith. You cannot be rebuked into having a stronger faith. It has to grow out of circumstances. It was hard for David as well. Why else do you think he was praying for it? In prayer, he was able to overcome this outer and inner turmoil. That's how you make sense of the world around you, through prayer. That's how you make sense of turmoil. And if it doesn't do that for you, then there could be one of two reasons for that. Either you are not really unloading your burdens, you're holding something back, or you don't really believe that someone is actually listening. So maybe then you're less like David and more like these voices. Still believers, but voices who said to David, who will show us some good? And maybe that makes you feel guilty. But the primary response to a weak faith should not be guilt. Instead of wallowing in guilt, we should just go back to God and trust that he has blessed us in Jesus Christ. We want to pray not just for sleep, not just for relief from turmoil, 
but to grow and to live out of our relationship with God and all these things, regardless of the circumstances. Isn't that what we want more than anything else, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And God will hear that prayer. Even when we struggle while we pray, we can, together with David, lay ourselves down in peace. We know that the Lord is there in our turmoil, in our inner turmoil, in our doubting, in our repentance from doubting, in all the confused fragments of life that are floating through our head. We noted at the beginning that, that surely one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is to stay consistent in your faith. But true faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. So even though it may be a struggle to stay consistent, it is not a struggle that we go through alone. The struggle is part of the process of faith. It's important that you understand that. A struggle is not a detour on the road of faith. This is actually part of how faith grows. We shouldn't be afraid of struggles. We shouldn't be afraid of working our way through this. Faith is not this pristine state of mind where everything else is just a a distraction. That's not how the Lord works in the lives of his children. That's not how the Lord works in this home either. He's working through all of these circumstances to grow faith in the hearts of his people. And the other thing to remember is that faith is not, not just what you experience in the moment. If you take one snapshot of how you are at this point in time, that can tell you something about your faith, but that is not your whole faith. That is one moment in a journey of faith that encompasses your whole life. So you need to step back and really take the, the, the long view. You need to work out your faith in the long term. And when you do, you'll come to realize what David also realized, that a psalm of lament can also be a psalm of confidence. Confidence because we have peace. Peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.